One of the kids' moms brought a pony by yesterday. Has uh, Elizabeth started asking for a pony yet? No, but Victoria is scared of it, so that's Oh, there you go. She saw it. Liz petted it, though. She was like, I petted it. See? Welcome to the newest episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. And this is episode 50. Woohoo! We are at the half center centenary. I don't know if that was English. Probably not. I feel like I've been mush mouthy all day. I felt the same way when I was reading my last story. I was like, oh, you sounded fine. So I hope I sounded. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Yes, we're banking episodes for. As we always do. Tend to. We try to. <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, what's new with you in the last 20 seconds? Not a whole lot. Yeah. No, me either. <laughs> I was telling at least how my uh, kids had, had a pony stop by their daycare yesterday. Because real bougie. Yeah, it is really bougie, isn't it? <laughs> I kind of was like, how do I get a pony to come to work? <laughs> you bring one. <laughs> yes. So, um Tales of Andy's boozy children aside, um, I understand Andy's got a, a big story to tell us this week. Yes, I do. And my story is not exactly the the smallest of stories, so probably best if we just dive right on in. Yeah. And because you went first last week, I'm going to go first this week. And my inspiration for this week's story, I can't remember exactly where it came from. It's on my list of things to cover. I don't know where or how or why it ended up there. Uh, But then I was listening to The Read from a couple of weeks ago now, when this episode drops, and Crystal was reading someone that related to the topic that was on my phone, so it seemed like a perfect time to do it all at once. So I am going to look at charities and some of the less than great aspects about giving to some of these causes that are out there. So first... Did you hear about the scandal at the American Regional Goodwill Network in Illinois, to be specific? No. So this I'm, is, I'm not up on the Illinois news, to be right. honest. Come on, Andy. I know. Home of Lincoln. How do you not have a news alert set for that? I do not. <laughs> so this is the story that Crystal from The Read was talking about. And I would like to introduce you to a woman named Sharon Durbin, who is the now former CEO of the Land of Lincoln Goodwill. If you're not familiar, Goodwill is a place where you can donate clothes and household goods, which are then resold at lower than retail prices, and the profits go to charity. As it turns out, Goodwill is also one of the nation's largest employers of people with disabilities. Uh, So that's Goodwill. Now, Illinois. Illinois recently passed legislation that would raise the state's minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2025. Putting that aside, under federal law, certain charities like Goodwill are able to pay their disabled employees a lower minimum wage than the state's minimum wage. People who generally have higher medical costs. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Um, so the increase in minimum wage isn't a popular move with some business owners and people uh, in industry because it cuts into their profits. And we see this up here too. Durbin, CEO of Goodwill, was apparently one of these people who was not supportive of the minimum wage hike. So Durbin uh, used the news of the wage increase to announce that they would be laying off many of the disabled workers currently employed by the Goodwill stores because they couldn't afford the increase given the state wasn't going to increase funding to the programming that made employing disabled people previously profitable for them. Wow! Yeah. Durbin, in what Nonprofit Quarterly called a, quote, one woman attempt to forestall an already legislated minimum wage hike, said out loud to people with functioning ears and brains that the program, quote, really was not a job. It was a work component. And through it, we gave them through grace out of our budget to pay them. So they had a paycheck to go home with. Like it was a hobby that paid. Just, just, just. Out of the goodness of our hearts. Yeah. Because they weren't doing it. Through anything. the grace of their budget. Uh, fact check. It was a job, a sense of purpose, and a social- socializing venue for those in society who needed help. As you might expect, things didn't go well for Durbin once the media picked this up. <laughs> really? And started pointing out how dumb of a decision that was. 
Illinois' two state senators, Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth, published a letter they sent to Durbin in which they said, quote, Your actions and statements call into question your judgment, your commitment to the organization's mission, and your fitness to continue serving in your current leadership role. While we appreciate the land of Lincoln Goodwill Industries' willingness to apologize for its harmful efforts and reverse course, fixing a manufactured crisis that you created is far from an admirable effort, end quote. This is coming from a guy named Dick. Yeah. (laughs) So though she spent a week trying to walk back this PR nightmare, it didn't work, and she has since resigned her $160,000 a year job. I'm sorry, what? Yes. This program was going to cut this increase was going to cost them about two million dollars. And so she decided she was going to allow these people to continue working for her, but not pay them, which there's a word for that. Uh, And then when she realized that the rest of the world was going to look at her crazy and finally decided she had to quit, she had to leave behind a hundred and sixty thousand dollar paycheck. They didn't give her any sort of package. I hope not. But her son is also employed by the Goodwill of Illinois for about $90,000 a year. Some people are so disconnected from reality. (laughs) Well, we know that. Yes, she is one of them. (laughs) So that's one example of what happens when a charity loses sight of its own mission and purpose and starts focusing on profit, but it's not the only one. And I'll talk about some of those a little bit later. I want to talk a little bit about how people can best decide what charities or charities to support. Uh, Sadly, I think a lot of people out there, and not just in Illinois, are going to feel weird about donating to Goodwill moving forward. Like, Goodwill is international, and it has national chapters, and each state has a chapter, each province, and then there's the regional chapters within the state, but bad press for one Illinois chapter is probably going to impact a lot of others. So here are some things to think about when you're trying to decide what charity to give your time and money to. And this comes from an article published by CanadaHelps.org. The first tip they give is to be yourself and consider what causes are important to you and what reach, so either local, national, or international, is most important to you. They suggest that you check the quality of the charity you're considering giving to. Consider if they are accredited by any trustworthy organizations or connected with a larger network that you know is trustworthy. So if a charity gets money from the United Way, it's probably a pretty good sign that they're on the up and up. Uh, But I'll talk about the United Way in a little bit. And consider taking a risk. Give some, though not all, of your charitable donations in a year to a new or a pie-in-the-sky charity, as they often need most help um, to get started or to build their momentum. So in late 2018, Consumer Reports published a list of the best and worst charities for making donations to. In that publication, Consumer Reports talks about a wing of the Better Business Bureau known as the Better Business Bureau Wise Giving Alliance. Uh, To become accredited by that group, the watchdog requires charities to spend at least 65% of their total expenses on their charitable mission and no more than 35% of contributions on fundraising efforts. So even that's a pretty big... Yeah, well, it is hard to, like, I... I, um... I feel bad sometimes when some charities get lambasted for, like, spending too much on overhead. Like, yeah. when the larger association, larger group you are, like, we worked for, like, we, it was a charity, but right. not really charity. Like, but depends on what you're doing. Like, sometimes the charity component might be a little bit different than what the other things are. So it has to right. look at, like, I some are way too high. Yes. But there's also like, well, look at me, I'm only doing like 5%, then it's like, okay, but are you paying your people enough? Yes. You know, you run into that, like you've got to find someone in a middle ground. In a balance, yeah. So uh, Better Business Bureau is saying that if you find an organization giving at least 65% of its raised money to its cause, that's a good kind of... It's probably Sarah. It is. Hi. You're here? Oh, sorry, we're recording. She just called me. I was just going to send you a text. Okay, we're back. We're back from our friend stopping by unexpectedly. Yes. Who's driving by. So we stood out on a warm porch for 20 minutes while her kids... I'm not going to say roasted in the car, but they had a movie. They spoke up when they were too warm to continue so they had the windows down yeah it was they got to see a train good times were had by all (laughs) my kids would have been like train (laughs) 
So we are back and I will continue with my story. So, uh, yes. So one of the groups you can go to to find out if a charity is reputable is the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance. But you can also check out Charity Navigator and Charity Watch, the latter of which gives letter grades to certain charities. And the list prepared by Consumer Reports triangulated data from all three groups. So oh, cool. their list is a pretty good representation of good charities. And not bad charities, but less good charities. Yeah, charities with higher overhead. Yeah. Uh, keep in mind that the charities I'm going to talk about are, for the most part, American, uh, but it goes a long way to demonstrating some of the issues you should consider when making your own donation. Now, before I start talking about specific charities, I want to stress that none of them are scams or bad charities. No. Not at all. They all still do amazing work, just yeah. some of them have higher overhead costs than others. Exactly. So, some of them might just pay their top-level executives a bit more than others. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if you donate to them, you are doing a good thing. My story should not stop anyone from making charitable donations to reputable organizations. The purpose of what I'm about to tell you is that each charity has a different bang for your buck quotient, and that's really what I want to stress. Yeah. All organizations, like we said, need to raise money to run themselves. So the question you should be asking yourself when considering a donation somewhere is how much of each dollar is going to the CEO salary, office rent, keeping the lights on, versus how much is going to the actual cause. And that's it. Again, none of the following charities are scams or bad, but there are some that put more of each dollar raised to their cause than others. So let's say you are an animal lover and want to support charities that help care for animals, and we'll have a big bang for your buck. You should consider directing your money to the American Humane Society or PetSmart Charities, but avoiding SPCA International, which was news that kind of rocked me because SPCA has been around forever and is synonymous with protecting animals. But according to Consumer Reports, it's not the best way to support animals. So the SPCA was founded in 1824 in England, primarily to prevent the abuse of carriage horses in the days before automobiles. And the first American chapter started in New York in 1866. In general, the SPCAs on both sides of the pond have been key to passing legislation to protect animals. But why aren't they the best organization to donate to? Well, according to their audited financials in 2018, they spent about $7.6 million on marketing and media costs out of a $17 million expense budget. Wow, that's a lot of so money. A third of their money is going to that. No, in fact, there was a couple other line items in there as well. So when I added everything up, just under 43% of their spending went towards self-promotion activities. Some of it is don't hurt an animal, support the SPCA. So there's some gray yeah. line in there, but really 43% is excessive. But then you could, they could debate that. So their large sort of marketing... Mm-hmm. awareness campaign helps all those other yeah. animal charities so they don't have to do as much because the SPCA True. is doing so much more so that that sort of money is not just helping their charities but it's helping all yeah. animal rescue charities. And so that's why it's still an a okay organization yeah. to donate to but when you compare that to something like the PetSmart's charities there's a, a different yeah. feel there. So in the 25 years since PetSmart's charity has been up and running. It's organized over 8.5 million adoptions, has spent more than $100 million on spay and neuter programs, has helped more than 7,000 people through their pet therapy programs, and has distributed more than $400 million in grants to various organizations. According to their website, 90 cents out of every dollar they raise goes directly to helping animals. And as a charity, their claims are very closely watched by the IRS, so I believe they have a 90%. They're also a for-profit company. And that's just it. So I would have assumed it would have been the other way around, that the long, like, 200-year-old established organization would have been a better bang for my buck type of place, because they know all the checks and they've been around. But a lot of the, I'm assuming, work that gets done behind the scenes on PetSmart is already absorbed into the for-profit wing. They're they're housing their foster animals in, in a store. Yes, so that so, store was already there. The yeah, so that the yeah. overhead cost isn't coming out of the charity per se. Exactly. It's coming out of the the for 
before profit side yes, of that company. Exactly. So that's why it's a little counterintuitive, but the best bang for your buck really is to give towards a PetSmart style charity versus the SPCA. Mm. So. Another popular cause that's often supported with uh, donation dollars is cancer research and treatment. And that's probably because we all know someone who has had cancer. So to support treatment and cure work, consider giving to an organization like the Cancer Research Institute, but maybe skip the Walker Cancer Research Institute, which is small, but I mentioned to highlight how close the names can be to one another, so you have to be very careful. So in the grand scheme of things, some cancers have better PR than others. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's, it's true. Uh, breast cancer. My next line. Breast cancer, for example, <laughs> is widely talked about and it's easy to get support for. Thank you to the NFL for doing their part, even though you're problematic towards women in many other ways. Uh, cancers like colorectal cancer are diagnosed less frequently and aren't the subject as as much fundraising because people are embarrassed to talk about it. Except for Ride for Dad. No, that's prostate. prostate. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So that's where the Cancer Research Institute comes in. They fund immunotherapy research, which has an impact on all cancers. So it's not just the big name ones. It's some of the smaller or harder to raise money for ones. Uh, the CIR currently supports more than 3,200 scientists around the world and have funded more than 120 clinical trials to date. And while the goal of the immunotherapy research is to target cancer, some of the best big breakthroughs in science have occurred accidentally or tangentially. So what could this work really do for us in the long term? Possibilities are endless. The CIR is so confident that they are good stewards for their donated funds that they actually advise people to check out their ratings with the Better Business Bureau, Charity Navigator, and Charity Watch, all the organizations used by Consumer Reports for their ratings, as well as GuideStar, which is a similar organization, but is even further. So they're putting it on Front Street, like, we are so good with your money, feel free to do your background checks on yes. us. Here's where you can do that. But if you Google Cancer Research Institute, you might come across the Walker Cancer Research Institute. Again, not a bad charity, just a different feel. The purpose of this Walker CRI uh, is to find effective treatment for cancer that is safer and more effective than what is currently used, so chemotherapy. Uh, a lot of their work seems to be centered around uh, botanical research and what that might do. What's telling to me is that there is nothing on their website about their financial statements, though. Most charities should publicly post it. Part and to be a registered charity, most places you have, have to. to. So are they a fully registered charity is right. my next question. Yes. So partly, I think the reason why they're not disclosing that online is because it's a smaller organization than some of the others that appear on the Consumer Reports list. I don't think there's anything fishy happening. It's just the website has a very early 2000s HTML mm. look to it. Yeah, uh, they just haven't got around to updating that. Puppy. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the fact is, charities really should have an open book policy on what they're doing with your money. One of the charities listed by community, uh, Consumer Reports that jumped out at me is the Gary Sinise Foundation, which benefits veterans. That's right. Lieutenant Dan has given back. <laughs> Uh, in an open letter on the Foundation's website, Sinise says that the events of 9-11 inspired him to support the men and women who were deployed into war zones in response. And the Foundation has several projects, uh, such as the RISE Project, which stands for Restoring Independence, Supporting Empowerment. And this builds specially adapted smart homes for severely wounded veterans and helps with modifications to existing homes and also provides mobility devices. They also provide support for families of active service members during and after deployments. They do community outreach and education, which looks at the history of U.S. service people. And the foundation also provides funds to first responders to help with equipment, training, and financial aid following catastrophic injury. And this is important because Consumer Reports, uh, their list doesn't include any high-rated uh, charities for first responder causes. They include a couple of low-rated ones. So if that is where your heart is, you can always give to an organization like the Gary Sinise Foundation, where it's not their primary goal, but it's a tangential goal that they do put a lot of time and money into. According to uh, Sinise's Foundation's website, 91.12% of funds raised go into program expenses, which is huge bang for the buck. 
4.97% goes to administration and 3.91% goes to fundraising efforts. What jumped out at me was the point whatever percentage. Yeah. That shows you that they are on point. They know where every penny yeah. is going and what it is doing. And that is really comforting if it's your hard-earned dollar going towards a cause. Yes. If you're a Canadian and would like to donate to a similar charity, I'd recommend the Together We Stand Foundation, which is geared towards supporting the families of deployed Canadian soldiers. Now, they are new, like the end of 2018 new, so there are no audited financial statements available on their website at the time, but that's because they haven't had a complete year worth yeah. of work. But they do have some big Canadian names on their advisory board, including former Prime Ministers Stephen Harper and Paul Martin, and then notable Canadians like David Amber, Paul Gross, Haley Wickenheiser, Chris Hadfield, Wayne Gretzky, and Guy Lafleur. So that's no guarantee that it's a good organization, but if you're going to look Canada's sweetheart Chris Hatfield in the face and say we've done wrong with your money and your name. That's true. It's harder. And also, you have a lot of hockey people on there, so there's right. a lot of like you know they can just hack the bone. Hey, Ty Domi, I have a favor I need you to do for me. <laughs> like the old enforcers coming out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, so. All that said, in the interest of due diligence, I wouldn't fault anyone if they want to wait a year to donate to them just so they can see what this charity is going to do. But as a former child of a service member, it's near and dear to my heart that this organization is geared specifically towards supporting the families during a deployment situation, which is terrible. So if you are Canadian and you are listening, you might also be saying, why would I go through all this hassle? That's what the United Way is for. I have always had a problem with the United Way. And let me tell you why. And all of this was learned in high school civics class, so things might have changed, but I still prefer to not put my money towards the United Way. My first and constant that I know is still a thing is they are a middleman. Yes. So if you're concerned about how much of each of your dollars goes to a cause, then adding the United Way is going to carve some of that money off. They have salaries and mortgages to pay, as well as the charities that they're supporting. And it just makes more sense to cut them out. Do your research and give directly to the charity of your choice. More of your money will get where you want it to go. They make it ridiculously easy to donate to them. They are connected with Canada's largest employer, which is the Government of Canada. And the Government of Canada allows their employees to select automatic paywall, payroll withdrawals to donate directly to uh, the United Way. Okay, but most charities will let you do something similar with your monthly credit card payments. So again, it's just a middleman there's really nothing harder to doing it without yeah. them than with them. My big issue, all of that aside, is that they give money to groups that you may not like, such as unions and anti-abortion groups. Now, judging by how much money my union already gets from me, and so all of my colleagues, I don't think they need charitable donations. Other employers that do it as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, like, you might not like anti-abortionists, but if you're, uh, like, a hardcore Christian or Catholic, you might not want to give to, like, a Planned Parenthood yep. type thing. And that's all in your own oh, yeah. view. But you cannot really dictate where your dollar goes with the United Way. Yes, a little bit. that is my second, that's my yeah. next point. So they claim you can identify where your money won't go. And sure, you can say, I don't want my money to go to a certain group, but there's no guarantee that that group's payout will be any less in a year. Because generally the agreement that charities have with the United Way is a percentage amount rather than a total dollar amount. So I may say no anti-abortion groups with my money, but if you don't identify that you don't want it to go to that, that means none of my money will go there, but all of your money would go there. Yeah. So at the end of the day, they're going to get the same amount of money, Yeah. whether or not you wanted. It's just a question of how dirty your hands get, right? Yeah. Are they going to be filthy or are they going to be dusty? It's all the same. And so really that is my biggest issue with them. It's the whole, like, this shell game that they're going to play with people's money, like, at the end of the yeah. day. It doesn't work. So I implore you to just do some legwork and give straight to the charity of your choice rather than the United Way. They don't need your help. <laughs> I think all the charities they support, if people would go to them directly, would be even better off but without the United Way's yes. hand in there. So I want to close out with some examples of charities that were just ridiculous or were a complete disaster. Uh, these are where the scam charities start. So I will stress, charities discussed before now, 
not scams. Yeah. Charities from here on, dicey, morally, if not straight up scammy. So Listserv starts off their list by reminding their readers that the road to hell is paved with good intention. So keep that in mind with what I'm about to close out with. Between 2004 and 2006, Kenya was suffering through a terrible drought. In an effort to help, New Zealand manufacturer Christine Drummond decided to donate some foodstuffs to the impacted region. I say foodstuffs because Drummond was a manufacturer of dog food. And while she claims that what she sent wasn't technically dog food, she did think that clarifying that the paste she sent was based on, quote, near identical formula was a good idea. Even worse than the insulting and probably racist action of sending dog food was that she sent her product to an area of Kenya that wasn't even impacted by the drought. Oh, muffin. Yeah, somebody didn't do that. In another example of white idiots taking advantage of Africa, we have the French charity Zoe's Arc. In 2007, this organization claimed to want to help children who had been orphaned in the conflict in Darfur. So they took a plane down to Chad, a neighboring country, and loaded it with orphans to take back to France to be adopted out to French homes. There are several problems with this. First of all... You're kidnapping children? Well, we're going to get there. (laughs) The first problem is that Chad's adoption laws make it illegal to remove children from refugee camps without government oversights. Specifically to avoid the whole, we might be kidnapping someone aspect of things. Child trafficking, you know. Yeah. Two, the organization didn't do its due diligence to make sure the children they took were actually orphans. Three, refugees supposedly are supposed to have a certain look. So it's alleged that the group might have inflicted injuries on some children to make them look like they needed more help. Three, four, wherever I am. Four, Four, I think you're at four. Uh, A Red Cross investigation found that 85% of the 103 children the organization kidnapped, because that's what it was, weren't even from Darfur, nor were they refugees. They had just been stolen off the streets from their parents in Chad. Oh my god, did these kids get home? I was too sad at that point to do any more research. I hope they get home. I do too. So. (laughs) Sweet mercy. Yeah. Uh, If you gave to Zoe's Ark, you should feel ashamed of yourself until the day they put you in the ground. (laughs) Another example, following the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, the UN redeployed a lot of its humanitarian relief personnel onto the island from other locations around the globe. And it was a lightning response type of situation, right? They went in very quickly, very heavily. Along with those relief workers, however, came cholera, which had been completely absent from the island for over 100 years because they were coming in from other poorly affected regions. Historically, cholera pops up in areas where sanitation infrastructure is absent or crippled and is spread by bodily fluids. So it's just a self-repeating, self-fulfilling prophecy where it just spreads like wildfire and gets worse and worse. As a consequence of the reintroduction of this um, bug, 8,000 people died of cholera and another 10,000 were made ill because of it. Uh, In a real F.U. to the people of Haiti and the scientific community as a whole, the U.N. is denying any responsibility and is refusing to help offset the cost of the epidemic, which has led Haiti to sue them in international court. Way to go, Haiti. Yeah, I know, right? Who would have thought the U.N. would be like the bringer of trouble? (laughs) The bringer of cholera. Of of cholera, yeah. I I think Romeo Delar would have told you that the U.N. was the bringer of trouble. That's true. That's very true. (laughs) Very, very true. (laughs) Uh, Similarly, in a rush to help following the 2004 Christmas Day tsunami in the Indian Ocean, a lot of do-gooders flocked to the region and contributed to what became known as the, quote, humanitarian circus. External charities who managed to get some influence in the region had a really bad habit of ignoring local charities and or completely disregarding local knowledge slash advice. For example, one group donated a bunch of boats to fishermen who had lost the source of their income. But it turns out that 25% of the donated sea craft weren't seaworthy. They just added to the... Yeah, they just gave them junk. in the pile, yeah. One group tried rebuilding homes in Thailand using metal materials, which anyone from a warm region will recognize is nothing more than a human-sized pizza oven. Can you imagine building a metal shack out back and living in it? No. Well, you'd be done in a couple of hours. You'd sweat it out everything. Like, oh, people are dumb. Uh, And as a consequence of all this, the circus, the Red Cross, which is an actual, legitimate, useful international response team, was cut out from doing what they do best and actually making a difference in the region. So just compounded and made things worse. I mean, now, the Red Cross, in all fairness, has some really high overhead, too. Yes. 
Yes, it does. But it's also the only yes. organization in the world that can do what it does. So if you're if something like a, na- a big national disaster happens, I think you're better off, if I remember correctly, um, donating to the Red Cross's relief-specific effort than donating to... Red Cross itself. Red Cross Canada. Yes. Because then that money has to funnel through all of the, like, middlemen in the channels. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. So the purpose of my story today was not to discourage anyone from donating to charity. Not at all. But I do want to encourage people to start being really thoughtful and diligent about who they donate to. Do your research and find a group that works best for you and your goals. And I would also consider ask you to consider donating local before anything else, because these groups are usually smaller. So A, need the help the most. B, will have the most impact on your community. And C, usually have a lower overhead. So more of each of your dollar will go to your actual cause. And don't just think about donating money. Uh, Does your pet not like the case of food that you just bought them? Like, what happened with my picky eaters? I bought a $50 case of cat food at Costco, and they wouldn't eat the first two cans out of it. So what am I going to do with $48 worth of cat food? Well, I looked for a local foster slash shelter and asked if they had any need for food, and they did. And we're very happy with the giant bag of food I gave them. Uh, The same goes for your old towels. If you're upgrading your bathroom, take your towels to the shelter. It oftentimes helps with putting it in the cages, making it more livable for animals. Uh, Do you want to support kids in your area? Well, check with your local girl guides or scouts, the library or youth groups to see if they need any help with events or just like sitting with kids at the library while they read, stuff like that. Are you great at construction or marketing or event planning? Well, then reach out to the local charity group that you want to support and see how they can benefit from your expertise and desire to help. Most often you'd be surprised how quickly they will take you up on an offer to do work for free. One thing to keep in mind, though, is we all have to do better to help one another. We do. Well, that was my story for this week, so I think it's time for you to tell me your story. So, uh, I was originally going to do a very different story, and then I was on my way in, and I just got totally sidetracked. Okay. So, this is a totally new rabbit hole that I fell down uh, today, uh, because I got to work early, so I was able to pull the information I needed. So, in May... 1960, the FDA approved the sale of the pill. Oh. That would arguably have the greatest impact on culture than Mm -hmm. any other drug. Oh, it made us all women sluts. Totally. (laughs) That's not where I was going. (laughs) But that's what they said when it was coming out. Yeah. For women around the world, a contraceptive pill was liberating. It allowed us to pursue careers, fueled the feminist and pro-choice movements, encouraged more open attitudes towards sex, and change the face of the male-dominated workforce. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what sparked me to abandon my other topic and fall down this rabbit hole? Uh, One of my other favorite podcasts is Revisionist History, Mm -hmm. uh, who is doing a three-part look at the moral reasoning of the Jesuit order. Oh, boy. Actually, they have a really great, like, anyways. uh, No, it's Jesuits that scare me. Yes, they do. But dicey history. Yeah. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Uh, But their problem-solving techniques are spot on. Oh, yeah, sure. Just wipe out the Huron that won't pray for you. (laughs) Uh, How does that tie in with the pill? Well, well, they talked about Dr. John Rock and how he pitched the pill to the Catholic Church. Hold on, we'll get there. Okay. So this goes ties right into your Vatican. Nicely. Um, so back to the pill. Along the key players in the development of the drug were two elderly female activists who demanded a contraception women could eat like aspirin and then paid for the scientific research. Get it, girls. A devoted Catholic gynecologist who believed that a robust sex life made for good marriage and argued tirelessly that the pill was a natural form of birth control. That's Dr. Rock. Oh, he, he made it really good. He okay. Almost got the church there. I'm not even kidding you. And a brilliant biologist who bullied a pharmaceutical company into risking a possibly crippling boycott to develop this revolutionary contraception. Okay. So uh, this might end up being a two-parter, too, because I only got to look at these four people. I didn't do anything else about, like, the development. This is almost seven pages just about these these four people. So first, I'm going to take a shout-out to the ladies who made this possible and are often forgot about. Uh, When the pill came out, the doctors and scientists were the center of attention with the contributions of Catherine Dexter McCormick 
and Margaret Sanger rarely mentioned. But in the last 10 years or so, their work is really being recognized. In the 1950s, when the U, uh, United States government, medical institutions, and pharmaceutical industry wanted nothing to do with contraceptive research, funding the development of the pill came from a very unlikely source, a single benefactor. Hmm. Catherine McCormick provided almost every single dollar necessary to develop the oral contraceptive. How do we not have pictures of Catherine McCormick hanging up in all of our homes? I know. For a woman once described as rich as Cronus, or as we would say today, rich AF. Right. Like, she was really rich. Uh, philanthropist acts were nothing unusual. However, McCormick's willingness to fund such a controversial controversial project at the time when 30 states still had laws on the book restricting the sale and use of contraception. Right. And we're talking like French letters and sponges. Like, yeah. Yeah. This, she was a badass <laughs> boss. Like, <laughs> uh, Catherine was not your typical society matron. She was born into a chi- prominent Chicago family in 1875 and her roots go straight back to the Mayflower. Unlike many women of her class, McCormick was encouraged by her father to pursue an education, and in 1904, she was awarded a bachelor's degree in biology from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Wow, she's an early STEM. Yeah, so she, despite her education and interest, Catherine did what was expected of women of her class. After graduation, she married Stanley McCormick, the wealthy heir to the International Harvester Company fortune. Since we both live in farm country... Mm. We know exactly who that company is. <laughs> Their marriage, however, was really good, but soon crippled by, crippled by tragedy when two years into the marriage, her dashing young husband developed schizophrenia Aww. and was soon lost to dementia. Mm. So they were married, uh, but he, he did not die for, for a long time. It was very sad. The microphone's uh, not going to pick that up because he whispered it. I know. Uh, I talk about it later, but but he did. He was sick for a very long time, and very ill. So um, it was widely believed that schizophrenia was hereditary, and Catherine did not want to pass on the terrible disease to her offspring. So she vowed to never have children. Hmm. What's a society lady to do in the early 1900s? Philanthropy and act- activism, of course, especially when you don't have any children. Mm-hmm. An early feminist, she was deeply committed to women winning women the right to vote and was a prominent member of the National American Women's Suffragette Movement. She firmly believed that a woman's right to control her body was as important as her right to vote. She ain't wrong. Yeah, but this, remember that. So during her suffragette days, she first crossed paths with the legendary birth control activist Margaret Sanger. This meeting was destiny, my friend. (laughs) The two activists met in 1917 when McCormick attended a lecture Sanger gave in Boston. Afterwards, they kept in touch. McCormick was committed to Sanger's cause and even helped by smuggling diaphragms into the country for Sanger's birth control clinics during her trips abroad in the 1920s. (laughs) What a thing to smuggle. (laughs) But like boss right like these ladies again should be on our money i'm sorry yes agreed i'm thinking of taking out all my cross stitch and um needlepoint kits just to like make images of these women they are really cool um despite yet despite her great wealth she was not ready to provide substantial funding for birth control research because she was uh entrenched in a bitter battle with her husband's family over the control of his wealth Mm. McCormick chose to focus her philanthropy on that time on family-approved areas such as schizophrenia research. Makes sense. In 1947, so again, they were married in the early 1900s. So 1947, Stanley McCormick died. Oof. And everything changed. She was awarded full control of his estate, placing $15 million in 1947 money at her disposal. Again, rich AF. AF. At the age of 75, she was finally free to pursue her personal ambitions, which was, spoiler, birth control. (laughs) Remember, I said that she believed that a woman's right to control her body was as important as her right to vote. Yep. As soon as Margaret Sanger told her about her vision of a pill as easy to take as aspirin, Catherine was hooked on the project. And this was the age of the polio vaccine and other miracle drugs, and Catherine, educated as a scientist, placed a great faith in biochemistry. 
At first, Margaret tried to convince her to spread out the donations and fund research in various universities in the U.S. and abroad. But Catherine was like, no. (laughs) She had little confidence in the academic approach. She did not want research. She wanted results. And she wanted them fast. She was determined to see oral contraceptive in her lifetime. And she was already 75. Right. I mean, she's not wrong. (laughs) No, like... You want to talk layers of bureaucracy, universities. Yeah. Oh, boy. So on June 8th, 1953, Margaret took Catherine to a small lab in the outskirts of Worcester, Massachusetts. There they met the scientist Margaret thought capable of developing her pill. At the end of their first meeting, Catherine took out her checkbook and wrote Gregory Pincus a check for $40,000, a small fortune at that time, and around $380,000 in today's value. That's a, that'll get your project off the ground. Yeah, and it would be the first of many checks she would write over the course of the research. Because Catherine, as I said, is a boss, she was not content to be a silent donor. She moved east from Santa Barbara to actively monitor the development of the birth control pill. She followed every stage of the project and constantly urged the researchers to move faster with the drug trials. The nearly six-foot-tall McCormack was described by Dr. Pincus's wife as a warrior. She carried herself like a ramrod. A little old lady she was not. She was a grenadier. (laughs) When the pill came onto the market in 1960, her remarkable contribution was quickly forgotten. Her death on ni- in December 28, 1967, at the age of 92, did not even merit an obituary in any of the major papers. Okay, the New York Times is currently doing this project where they're going back and looking at um, minority groups who didn't get obituaries in the Times, but should have. I would like to nominate this broad for one of those. Yes, <laughs> I totally agree. Because without... Without these four people who were very passionate about this project, like, we might not have had the pill anytime soon. Right. Right? Like It would still be in some university lab somewhere. Or, because everybody was like, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Right. Like, how slower maybe society would have changed? Like, society would have eventually got there, and I think we would have eventually got there. But these, this woman especially was like, no, I want this done before I die. Right. The ticking clock. Yeah. On this. She was poking those people and probably like they were like oh my god not her again but it worked (laughs) it worked it got there so on to our next boss lady margaret sanger she margaret devoted her life to legalizing birth control and making it universally available for women born in 1879 sanger came of age during the heyday of the cornstalk act a federal state status that criminalized contraceptives margaret sanger believed that the only way to change the law was to break it So, starting in the 1910s, she actively challenged federal and state cornstalk laws to bring birth control information and contraceptive devices to women. Her life's ambition was to find the perfect contraceptive to relieve women from the horrible strain of repeated unwanted pregnancies. And at the time, this was a massive problem, especially in poorer communities, and I think it's safe to say that it's still a struggle in some parts of the world. Even this part of the world, in some communities. So Margaret's commitment to birth control sprung from her personal tragedy. One of 11 children born in a working class Irish Catholic family in Corning, New York. At age 19, Margaret watched her mother die of tuberculosis. At just 50 years, her mother had wasted away from the strain of 11 childbirths and seven miscarriages. Yep. Pregnant 18 times. I was pregnant twice, and that is more than enough. My mother used to live next to the church, and every year the priest would come, and if the bassinet was empty, he would ask why she wasn't doing her duty. Mm. I'd be like, are you doing your duty, sir? He thought he was, oh. <laughs> by encouraging her and my grandfather to get on it and have more babies. Yep. Facing her father over her mother's coffin, Margaret lashed out, you caused this. Mother is dead from having too many children. Well, she probably wasn't wrong. It certainly wouldn't have helped the, the system. Determined to escape her mother's fate, Margaret attended nursing school in the Catskills, and after school, she worked as a visiting nurse on the Lower East Side in New York. It was there that Margaret saw her mother's story lived repeatedly in the lives of the poor immigrant women. Lacking effective contraception, many women, when faced with yet another unwanted pregnancy, uh, resorted to $5 back-alley abortions. Yeah. 
And it was after these botched abortions that she would often provide care. And after experiencing many women's trauma and suffering, Margaret found her calling and shifted her attention from nursing to the need for better contraception. Margaret began to devote more and more of her time to her mission. In 1914, she coined the term birth control. So she's Mm. actually the one who coined the term. And soon began to provide women with information and contraception. Indicted in in 1915 for sending diaphragms to the mail and arrested in 1916 for opening the first birth control clinic in the country, she's not going to be stopped. In 1921, she founded the American Birth Control League, the precursor to the Planned Parenthood Foundation. Nice. And spent her next three decades campaigning to bring safe and effective birth control to the American mainstream. I apologize, you're probably spinning in your grave now. Yeah. By the 1950s, although she had won many legal victories, she was far from content. After 40 years of fighting to help women control their fertility, Margaret was extremely frustrated with the limited birth control options available to women. Since the 1842 invention of the diaphragm in Europe and the introduction of the full-length rubber condom in the U.S. in 1869. 1869 is what caught you? What caught me was full length. (laughs) (laughs) What? Was it just like a little hat? Like, <laughs> jaunty hat at an angle. <laughs> we apologize to our listeners. I just can't believe the condom's been around since 19... It's our 1896. Oh, no. Like, the condom's been around for... Yeah. Like, well, yeah the modern some, yeah. iteration. Yeah. There had been no new advances for contraception methods. Sanger had championed the diaphragm, but after promoting it for decades, she knew it was still the least popular birth control method in America. Even though it's highly effective, it was expensive and awkward and a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. In her 70s and in poor health, she was tired of waiting for science or industry to turn its attention to the problem. Margaret Sanger set out on a mission. She sought someone to realize her vision of a magic pill that was easy to take as aspirin. She wanted a pill that could provide women with cheap, safe, effective, and female-controlled contraception. Her search ended when she met George Pincus, having him and Catherine the sponsor for the research, and later Dr. Rock, when he came on board. This was better than the event- any Avengers group. They created Avidol, the first oral contraception. Hmm. So this is your original Avengers, people. Okay. <laughs> these, these ladies and these men were superheroes. There's a Tony Stark. There's yeah. a Captain America. <laughs> exactly. There's a Stanley Tucci, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> There's a Scarlet Witch in there, I'm sure, too. There you go. Not only did Singer Lee... Sanger lived to see the realization of her magic pill, but four years later, at the age of 81, she witnessed the undoing of all of the cornstalk laws. In 1965, the Supreme Court case Griswold versus Connecticut, the court ruled that the private use of contraception was a constitutional right. When Sanger passed away a year later, after more than half a century of fighting for the rights of women to control their own fertility, she died knowing that she had won that battle. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Must have been a load off her shoulders why she could go. It's why RPG is still alive. <laughs> like, she won't go until she knows things are secure. Well, I mean, I can't think, like, this woman was tireless. Like, she was just, like, a dog with a bone. She was not letting this go. Right. She had a vision in her head, and she was going to find somebody to do that. There you go. So we're going to talk about the two men in this uh, this equation. If we must. <laughs> Actually, they're pretty cool. I mean, they still they, they have their problems. F- they still have problems. But they took a flying leap with their career. In oh, this. yeah. Yeah. Like, this could have ended their careers. Definitely. Yep. Um, so in 1953, when Margaret was looking for a scientist to develop the birth control, she found Gregory Goodwin Pincus. He was an unconventional choice, working on the fringes of the academic and scientific community, and with little of his situation suggesting that he could pull off such an enormous undertaking. Born in 1903 to Russian Jew and Jewish immigrants in Woodbine, New Jersey, Gregory won a scholarship to Cornell University, where he excelled at biology. He went on to land an appointment at Harvard as an assistant professor and soon became known for his creative and innovative research in mammalian sexual physiology. In 1934, at the age of 31, he made national headlines by achieving in vitro fertilization of rabbits. Hmm. Gregory was a decade ahead of his time, but instead of fame and accomplishments, it brought notoriety. Huxley's novel, A Brave New World, had just been published, Mm. and the nightmarish story of fatherless test-tube babies 
born with no humanity or spirit, had captured the public's imagination. Pincus was vilified in the press for his discovery, and he was depicted as a Dr. Frankenstein who turned science fiction into reality. Of course. So instead of this being an amazing breakthrough that it was, his career was almost tanked. Like, pretty much it tanked. So in 1936... Gregory published a seminal work titled The Eggs of Mammals, and that received wide acclaim in the international scientific community, but it was too late to erase the taint of the test tube bunnies. Harvard sorry, Harvard denied his tenure and refused his reappointment, so his career was dead in the water. With the country in the deep in deep in the Great Depression, Gregory was desperate to find a way to support his wife and two small children. An old friend from Harvard came to the rescue and invited Gregory to work in the biology department at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, as a visiting professor of zoology. So, of course, he accepted the offer, and in 1944, him and Hogland, who was the the professor, uh, established the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology. The foundation soon found a niche doing applied research, especially in the burgeoning area of steroids, but it was struggling to stay afloat. That's when Margaret and Catherine approached him in 1953 about developing a new form of contraception. And he was confident he could deliver it. He was aware of a study showing that progesterone would work as an anti-ovulant, and he had a hunch that would prove to be a good contraceptive drug. Hmm. Because again, he had made test tube baby rabbits. Yeah. Dude knows how to reproduce. Yeah. And he was trying not to. (laughs) In this case... Um, with the funding from McCormick, it was a matter of months, Gregory and his colleague Min Shung Chang, I probably butchered that, I apologize, provided that, proved that repeated injections of progesterone stopped ovulation in animals. Hmm. So they, like, went right to it. I mean, this is before a lot of ethics reviews, yeah. so, I mean, like... Peter wasn't knocking on anyone's doors asking any awkward questions. Yeah. <clears throat> and the real challenge, however, was to invent an inexpensive pill form of the drug... In a stroke of good timing, chemistry, chemists working for two separate, separate drug companies had recently created orally effective forms of synthesized progesterone. Hmm. Although both pharmaceutical companies were wary of using their new compounds for contraceptive purposes, both Syntax and Serol allowed Gregory to use the formulas in his preliminary human studies. Like, what else do they come up with it for? They, it was a um, part of it was actually for uh, fertility drugs to start out with. Oh, okay. Yeah, again, that's how Doctor Rock gets involved. Um, with pills in hand, Gregory began collaborating with a well-known fertility specialist, Doctor John Rock, on human trials in Massachusetts. So, after initial successes with small trials, they la- launched large-scale human trials for the pill in Puerto Rico in 1956. Ooh. I'll I'll get to there using Cyril's formula for the synthetic progesterone. The reason they did it in Puerto Rico is because it didn't have a law that banned contraceptive. Yeah. Like so many of the states did. That doesn't make my icky feeling feel better. <laughs> that just confirms why I have that icky feeling in the pit of my stomach. It was just because they, they like most of the other one of the other states, a lot of the other states had like laws against any yeah. form of contraceptive. But instead, they went to a minority population to run their tests. Again, this was the 50s. Not a whole lot of ethics reviews. But they actually did have really good trials. Because they originally ran a small-scale trial in Massachusetts. And then they did uh, bigger-scale trials in Puerto Rico. And there was another one that I don't know if I mentioned. But I might mention in Dr. Ross's. When the U.S. US Food and Drug Administration approved Cyril's drug for contraceptive use in the 1960s, He received international acclaim for his work. In 1965, he was elected to the University Academy of Sciences. Sadly, just two years later, though, at the age of 64, he would die a painful death from a bone marrow disease caused by exposure to lab chemicals. Now we'll go on to our last remaining Avenger. (laughs) When Gregory Pincus asked Dr. John Rock to collaborate with him on clinical trials for an oral contraceptive. Rock seemed like an unlikely choice. We're seeing a lot of this. They're all unlikely choices. Right. 
Uh, this highly regarded obstetrician and gynecologist was a devout Roman Catholic and a groundbreaking infertility specialist who devoted mo- much of his career to helping women with fertility problems to conceive. As one of those women, thank you, Dr. Rock, for being, like, a pioneer in this. In the course of his practice, Rock had witnessed the suffering women endured from unwanted pregnancies. He had seen collapsed wombs, premature aging, and the desperate desperation caused by too many mouths to feed. The experiences of his patients had a profound impact on the man. Despite his faithful Catholicism and the church's opposition to contraceptive, Rock came to support contraception within the confines of marriage and believed that the power of birth control to stem poverty and prevent medical problems associated with pregnancy. So he he, he still had his problems because he didn't really want Harvard to admit women as doctors. But So he was kind of a jerk on the whole, like, women are equal thing. He, he did get But he there. gave us more babies and the ability to monitor ourselves. <laughs> yeah. He, he was kind of contradiction, as most of these men are at this age, right? Uh, so, John, he actually, he never planned on becoming a doctor. Born on March 24th in 1890 in Marlborough, Massachusetts, Rock went to High School of Commerce in Boston and then set his sights on a career in business. After working on a bl- banana plantation, plantation in Guatemala and dealing with a violent strike, he turned his attention to medicine. So after obtaining an undergrad and medical degrees from Harvard in 1918, Rock worked in several Boston-area women's hospitals and established his own medical practice. Apparently he wasn't big on, he was, didn't know what area of medicine he was going to do until he went into an obstetrics rotation mm-hmm. and decided that's where he was going to, uh, to spend his time. Although John had a progressive view of birth control, he was a social conservative. A super devout Catholic, he attended Mass daily, sometimes twice to three times a day, and kept a crucifix on the wall above his office desk. But neither his uh, conservative social views or his religious faith could shake his belief in the importance of birth control. John credits a parish priest for giving him his life's guiding principle. When he was 14, this priest told him, John, always stick to your conscience. Never let anyone keep it for you. Every so often, there's a good priest or two thrown in there. (laughs) This belief guided him to take a stand, and in 1931, Rock put his reputation on the line by signing a petition with 15 other prominent Boston physicians urging the repeal of the Massachusetts law prohibiting the sale of contraceptives. Risking excommunication, he was the only Catholic doctor to make this stand. After the Catholic Church approved the rhythm method in 1936, Rock was the first doctor to open a rhythm clinic in Boston. There he taught Catholic women how to use the only birth control method permitted by their church. It's not a birth control method, BT Dubs. It's not. And even he knew that. It's it's like (laughs) Russian roulette. (laughs) But he was big on like, okay, you know, this is... He was trying to get it as best as he could, but even he knew that it was a bit sketchy. A bit? Yeah. <laughs> he's hit or miss. <laughs> but he's also a doctor. So he could teach women, like, and he was one of the first doctors to do a lot of research on fertility. Right. So he was trying to do the best he could. I'll give him some, like, props. He at least opened a hospital to ta- or clinic to, to teach women the only birth control method permitted by their church. As a, pe- a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Harvard Medicine in the 1940s, Rock taught his students about birth control, something unheard of in medical schools at the time. Mm-hmm. In 1949, he co-authored a book called Voluntary Parenthood, explaining birth control methods for the general reader. Hmm. By the time Gregory Pincus approached Rock in the early 50s about the pill, Rock also had come to believe in the need for the world population control, which actually is something that both Catherine McCormick and Margaret Sayer ended up being big believers in, like, we are overpopulating the uh, world back in the 1950s. Jeez. <laughs> wow, they're, and they we should see it now. They're definitely rolling in their graves now, then. At this time in his life, he could have easily been setting into a comfortable retirement, but Rock agreed to work with Gregory on the controversial project to create the magic pill, which I keep referring to it as, <laughs> uh, as part of this infertility research at his clinic. Rock was able to conduct the first human trials for the pill in Boston and sidestep Massachusetts rigid anti-birth control laws. Hmm. So it was his actual infertility clinic mm. 
So it was the fertility clinic that they used to do those smaller trials. Right. To test out to make sure that it was going to do what they wanted it to do. When they submitted the pill to the FDA for approval, the FDA dragged their feet. I know, you're shocked, right? <laughs> Finally, Dr. Rock was done with waiting. Now, this man was over six feet. Okay. Kind of an assuming. He, apparently, he looked a little bit like a Cary Grant type of... Okay. Like a dashing older man. Also pretty, like, not intimidating, but he was fairly forceful. He had a little bit of the parish priest in him, I guess. When he would... Any of his clients, no matter... He was not big on charging... Okay. He he used to work in the poorer communities. He did not charge much for his services. Probably why he had to come into retirement and do this pill thing. Right. But apparently he was very, like, he would talk to his... Like, he would actually have conversations. He would look people in the eye. He referred to himself by his first name. Like, he was very personable. Hmm. And with... No matter if you were someone who was paying him and had, like, status, or if you were the poorest immigrant with 12 kids. Right. He treated everybody the same. He would get up. He would go meet them. He at, In the waiting room, he would walk them into the room himself. Hmm. Like, he was a very personable, like that. Um, Malcolm Gladwell called it the aspect of the parish priest in him. And they're like, no, he definitely <laughs> did. He was done waiting, as I said. He got on the train and went to Washington, went into the FDA, and spoke with the person handling the final stages of the file. He presented all of his facts, mm -hmm. like why this drug, like he, he was so comfortable with his conscience of going ahead and be like, you have to approve this drug. Like this works. This is going to be great. Okay. Like we know that there's not going to be problems like, you know, other than obviously there's some problems with some drugs. Like everybody has a reaction, but yeah. there was, it's like, I'm so confident. Like I'm sleep soundly. So he presented all his data and the FDI was like, that sounds great. I'll look at it when I get a chance. And he stood up and he was not having any of this. He was like, no, you are going to do it now. <laughs> and he like put his finger on the file and stood there and the guy signed off on it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not even kidding you. So they laugh because he like intimidated a, a guy at the FDA. Like this is in their final stages. And his uh, partner had sort of intimidated a drug company into letting them use. Right. So, and both women were fairly intimidated in getting yeah. them to do this as quick as they did. Like it was That's a how whole you get stuff done. Exactly. These people were like a dream team. So after taking on the FDA at the age of seventy, John launched a one-man campaign to gain Vatican approval of the pill. <sighs> he argued that using the pill was a more precise way of following the rhythm method. And he strongly believed that the church should consider it a natural and therefore acceptable form of birth control hmm. because it contained the same hormones already presented in a woman's reproductive system and just extended the safe period in a woman she could have every month. Okay. Because the actual original edict is something about frustrating the natural course of reproduction or something. Okay. So it's like, you know wordy like they did back then. <laughs> so, in 1963, he gained national attention for his cause with the publication of the Time Has Come, a Catholic doctor's proposal to end the battle over birth control. The debate sparked by Rock's book received wide publicity. He was featured in a bunch of news media, and as Rock became a familiar figure in the U.S. and abroad, his view quickly took root amongst the laity of the church and as well as amongst many Catholic religious leaders. So much so that the church put together a group of bishops and lay people to debate the topic. And a large group, like this was like 70-something people. Mm. After a long investigation, they voted 68 to 4 in favor of accepting the pill. Wow. Like there was bishops, everybody was on board with this. This created confidence that the church would approve the use of the pill. Rock and others were crushed when the Pope at the time flinched and officially banned the pill in an edict humite vitae on human life. In his latter years, he had lost faith in the church. The man who was once attended mass daily stopped going to church altogether. Aww. And it's really sad. When Rock died in New Hampshire at the age of 94, Oof. he was still bitterly disappointed by the church's refusal to change his position on the pill. He died in 1984. Yeah, he was 94. Hmm. Like, he might have been disappointed at the church, but he shouldn't be at all disappointed with his work. God, These no. four people, I feel, in large part, was why the sexual revolution happened, yeah. why we can pick when and if we have kids. 
And like a lot of the sort of benefits that we as women in this age see came from Dr. Rock, uh, Gregory Mm. Pincus, Margaret Margaret Sayer, and Catherine McCormick's hard work. Like he tried to get, he almost got the Mm. church to approve the pill. Like, I get that he's disappointed. I'm disappointed that it didn't work too. Because you think in 1963 or 1964 when they voted on this, if they had accepted that, think of how different yeah. some aspects of the world might be. Well, it be. sounds like they had everyone on board and it was just some old dude who decided not to when the Pope put his foot down and said no. Yeah, the so Pope decided no. Yeah. So that's who I'm going to take reproductive yeah. advice from. Reproductive medical advice from. So that was my rabbit hole. Interesting. Thank you. The new rabbit hole is uh, male birth control, which they keep creeping closer and closer and closer to. By all accounts, like, birth control on a woman's body isn't the best thing to constantly be putting ourselves through. I mean, the alternative is probably harder and longer-lasting impact, uh, at least 18 years' worth of impact. Uh, but it's it's not great on our systems, whereas the research is saying that a male birth control would have far less impact on the internal workings of the male body than a woman's than it is back to a woman so i'm interested to see we need another mccormick to come through and be like i am done with women taking the pill and it's time for men to come through and do their job but what's also astounding is the pill hasn't changed that much no. since it was first developed by these four people right i think i'm gonna name this episode bang for your buck <laughs> McCormick got it, that's for sure. Why do we not hear about these women when we talk about... Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah. Granted, they were white, and she was very privileged, but she was... But if you take that privilege and use it for good, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, like, she just was like, no, no. And I mean, I'm sure if I did more research on her, I'd find out that her money probably did amazing things for schizophrenia research back in that day. Like, Or you could find out she was a chronic like puppy kicker or something like that. That is true. Because <laughs> everybody has a problem, yes, right? Like, every hero is a hero on the surface. <laughs> but it's, again, the Avengers, they're not all perfect. Exactly. Right? And what we were talking about when our, we were doing our women history, it was like, she was a great, she did XYZ, but she was also really big on eugenics. Yeah. <laughs> The feminist lord giveth, and she taketh away. Yeah, so. (laughs) But I mean, like, she was just so driven. And as soon as she got access to all of, like, as soon as she got 100% control of that money, she's like, "Mm mm-mm. My show now. Yeah. And it's going to get done, and it's going to get done before I die. I'm like, hats off to you, my lady. Yes. And our thanks. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. Uh, If you would like to know more about the show, see our show notes where we list all the sources we use for our story, head over to our website, which is www.rabbitholespodcast.com. While you're there, check out our merch tab, which takes you to the Redbubble store so you can pick up some of our cute merch to wrap us out in the big bad world. You can also check out the support tab, which takes you to our Patreon page and come on board as a patron. And if you want to let us know about rabbit holes that you like to fall down or that you would like us to fall down on your behalf, feel free to send us an email at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter at rabbitholespod, on Instagram at rabbitholespodcast, Facebook at rabbitholespodcast page. I also like to remind you that you can rate or give us a review on iTunes or a bunch of other platforms. You can also recommend us on Facebook or you can just straight up recommend us to your friends and family because let's face it, we awesome. Yes, please. Uh, Also to remind you that the Ottawa Podcast Festival is coming up. It's on August 24th, 2019 in Ottawa, of course. Uh, If you'd like more information about the lineup or to pick up your tickets, head over to ottawapodcastfestival.com. All the information is there for you. And that means there's just one last thing to do, and that's to remind you that if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.